listening to From Maker to Manufacturing, a podcast about what it really takes to grow a handmade business. Hey guys, welcome to episode eight of From Maker to Manufacturing. I'm your host, Sarah Cooley. On today's episode, we talk to Bissera from Lush Nuts, and she shares with us the difficulties and struggles of a food-based entrepreneur. I think our conversation is really interesting, seeing both the differences and similarities that we shared in growing our businesses. Bissera is also a West Michigan-based entrepreneur, so it was so fun to have my first local entrepreneur on the show. There are a few audio difficulties with this episode, so I apologize in advance. There's a little bit of an echo in the audio since I recorded this episode in a different location than normal. And then secondly, the last two minutes or so of our conversation got mysteriously deleted. I can't figure out how to recover them, and I'm not going to waste too much time trying to figure it out since all you really miss is me finishing a rant about wholesale buyers on vacation and me thanking Bissera for coming onto the show. She also wanted to give you guys a discount code for 15% off at Lush Nuts so you guys can try out these nuts for yourself. I put the discount code in the podcast description below, but you can also find it in the blog post on frommakertomanufacturing.com. I also polled our two employees on their favorite Lush Nuts flavors since they have become quite a staple in our studio snacks. I hope you guys enjoy this episode and please don't be alarmed by the abrupt end. I will come in and join you again at the end and fill you in on what you missed. Okay, let's get into the interview. Hi, Bissara. Thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you get the honor of two firsts on this show. First are like my first time interviewing a local West Michigan company. Your company is based in Kalamazoo. And then you're our first food-based business. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your company? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Bissari Darvik. Um, I'm the founder and owner of Lush Gourmet Foods. And uh, my company is... Um, like you said, based in the Kalamazoo area. And uh, what we do is make gourmet nuts. So peanuts, almonds, and then more recently, a line of trail mixes. And just so you guys know, my two employees have become so incredibly obsessed with the nut mixes (laughs) that they like beg me, like, they're like, how can we order more? And I'm like, we can't afford to just like buy this all the time so but they've they've like worked out some some trades worth candles for nuts because yeah. it has become their <laughs> their studio fuel where the other day I caught them arguing over who had eaten more oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> and they're like you're not eating at all you're like selectively picking out of the mix and so they get into it's a it is a very heated um item in our studio supplies of snacks um Hilarious. I love to hear that, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they they totally love it. Um, I'm really curious how you got started. It's just just kind of like, how did the business start? Where did this idea come from? Where did your initial like recipes come from? And kind of like, what's your food related background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I actually went to school for pastry. um, And I also have another degree in food and beverage management. Um, out of Chicago. And that's where 
I guess, the food background comes from, where a lot of the more unique flavors um, kind of came about, like the coconut lavender and a dark cocoa chili. Um, but actually, the original peanut was the family recipe. So it's something that my mom and um, her dad came up with many, many years ago. Uh, it's something that I had always grown up with um, at home if we had people over or during the holidays. So it was kind of a more specialty type thing, more occasional for us. Um, and I basically used that as the base and the inspiration for all of the other varieties. So um, it's just something that everyone loved. And I thought this would be a really great way to, um, to start a business and introduce that to everyone. So initially, you kind of had this idea, I want to start a business first. <laughs> and what would be the best thing to start a business with? And then you, you realized, oh, we have this family recipe. It didn't kind of happen accidentally. It was very intentional. Yeah, definitely. Um, I had thought about it all throughout college. But um, during my junior year, um, I was in a marketing class. And um, we had to come up with a product that we were going to, I guess, sell and market to the hotel industry. So I thought, well, this mm. is a great opportunity to basically kickstart the business. So I used it as my project. Um, and that kind of snowballed from there and actually got everything rolling. And by the time um, I had almost finished college, um, I had actually launched the product into the market, which was January of 2011. So okay. it's been a little over five years now. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the backstory of it all. <laughs> and when you started selling, like after you kind of had worked out the the marketing and the business structure details, like through this class that you were taking, when you started selling, how many different varieties of nuts or like how many different SKUs essentially did you have at the time? Well, I started out with five flavors of the peanuts. So it was obviously the original um, salt and pepper, cinnamon spice, hot curry, and coffee. And they were basically just flavors that I wanted to eat mm -hmm. or they were inspired by other people um, that I had knew that I had known. Um, funny enough, the coffee one um, at the time when I made it, I actually didn't drink any coffee. Um, <laughs> but ended up be it ended up being my favorite. And now I'm course I'm addicted to coffee and <laughs> the coffee peanuts but um yeah so I started out with those five flavors and I actually made them in three different sizes so I had a little mini pack which I still have now which is mm -hmm. a three ounce it's like a little snack on the go um I had a three ounce and then a I believe a seven ounce so I thought it was great to have a variety mm -hmm. of sizes because I'd seen that in the past but after I changed up my packaging, I actually ended up scaling it down to only two sizes. So it's now a 0.8 ounce and a 5 ounce. When you were first making the peanuts, like what, were you making them in your kitchen? What was the like process for production like? So yes, when I was first starting out um, developing the recipes, that was just done out of a standard home kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, but when I started officially selling, um, I was working out of a converted kitchen in my parents' basement. So obviously, it's really expensive to do a build-out or mm -hmm. have a kitchen space. Um, so they graciously offered to um, convert our second or their second kitchen into my workspace. So 
Um, I mean, obviously it was like the health department came in and department of agriculture, that sort of thing. So it's fully regulated, but it was just very, very small. <laughs> well, that's cool that you were able to still get all of the necessary regulated things, you know, checked off even in a converted home kitchen. I know that like before we started recording, you and I were just talking a little bit about the food industry and I can't, I can only imagine how much more difficult it is when you have all of these like regulatory bodies in place that have to be, you know, where everything is prepared has to be like, you know, checked off and, and somebody who's making something else like jewelry or sweaters or something like you don't have, you know, those same types of challenges. Was it difficult to like get them to accept kind of this unconventional space? Um, well, it's not like I was the first one that had ever done it. So it's not completely uncommon. Um, but for me, it was just so different, you know, jumping through the hoops and figuring out the entire process. Hmm. Uh, Obviously, I didn't have any background in this. I actually didn't go to school for business. So, you know, all of that was definitely new. Um, My dad helped me out a lot. And luckily, the people um, at the department were really nice and helped me along the process. But when I was um, coming into my new space that I've been now in a year and a half, um, that was a little bit different different because it's a commercial space. So there, there were a lot more regulations that came in. Um, the fire marshal had to come in. Um, you know, you have to have, uh, exit signs and a fire extinguisher and all that sort of stuff. So that was a little bit more of a process, but we were still able to get it done and up and running. When you were first making and you, uh, had the peanuts and the different flavors, where were you primarily selling the product? So the first store that I actually worked with that I still love um, is Sawal Health Foods on Oakland in Kalamazoo. And um, I thought that was the perfect space for me because um, all of the nuts are vegan, gluten-free, soy-free, all natural. Mm-hmm. So it really fit a lot of those categories in terms of a health food product. Hmm. So I thought that would be the best place to start out. Um, And I kind of kept with that trend for a while. And then I slowly started realizing, well, you know, there are a lot of other markets for this product as well, like gift shops, coffee shops, Hmm. hotels, you know, et cetera. So that's kind of how I've expanded from there. So have you ever done like, I don't know, maybe there just aren't as many opportunities, but have you ever done like farmer's markets regularly or just like selling direct to the customer in the beginning to like get feedback or did you kind of just start right in the beginning going directly to store buyers? I just started directly going to stores. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Pretty bold. Um, There are, there were a lot of people that recommended doing the farmer's markets, but for some reason I just didn't and Mm. I decided to go full force and and started contacting stores which was so scary Hmm. oh my gosh I remember the first time when I went into Swalls um my mom came with me and we were in the car and I had my little bag all set up and I had pictures and the product and all that sort of stuff and I went in and um Ken that still works there he was so nice we sat down and he tried it and he brought it in and I came up to the car and I told my mom and she just started crying. She was oh, so no. excited, um, probably more excited than I was, but <laughs> it was it was awesome, yeah. When you went in, did you previously make an appointment or to meet with them or did you just walk in? 
with the nuts? Like we would shop there all the time. So Mm, uh, it wasn't kind of a new thing, but I did uh, reach out to Ken and made an appointment and I think that's super important because store owners and buyers all the time like that I talk to, you know, I've the number one thing they say is like, please don't walk in the door with a bag full of your product yeah. on a busy <laughs> Saturday and try to, you know, find the store buyer. Like you can find an email address, even if it's just a general one, like you can if you want to meet with them in person, if they are local, you can definitely set up a time to show them your product yeah. in person. But like, yeah, don't just walk into stores with stuff. It doesn't work. It doesn't. It's it's really tough. Not yeah. a good idea. <laughs> and it's the number one way to make the buyer upset and frustrated before they've even had a chance to look at your stuff. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's yeah. like hundreds of people or a lot of people trying to get their time mm-hmm. and get in front of them. So I think the best way is to make an appointment if possible. Or if you're fine, just ship them the product. Right. You know, send the price list or or whatnot and follow up from there. So when you decided to, or you, when you kind of realized that there was a wider market than just like the health food store, health food store, snack kind of grocery store market, what was the first thing that you went after in terms of like how to make that, that shift? Or did you just kind of just cast a really, really wide net? Or did you go in like one category at a time? Well, at first I did stick with grocery stores and the health food stores, but I was really careful to choose which stores I reached out to Mm. uh, just to make sure that it's a right fit as well. So I slowly started in Kalamazoo and then worked my way up to Grand Rapids and Lansing, Ann Arbor, and then kind of slowly going, started going out from there. So you kind of focused on like local self-distribution, essentially. Definitely, yeah. So I'm still actually self-distributed. <laughs> but is that because primarily to get into other regions, is it more difficult without a distributor? Or can you still just do the one-to-one contacting store buyers in other parts of the country? You know, um, Well, it really depends on the store. Um, there are some stores that strictly work with distributors and certain distributors. Mm-hmm. So it would be a lot I guess, tougher, but I actually prefer working with smaller independent shops Mm -hmm. and most of those will work directly with me, um, which I think is nice. It's great having like a personal connection with either the owner or the buyer. Yeah. And I feel like you build a better relationship and they'll take care of your product a lot more. That's definitely true. I've seen that, you know, kind of across the board in industries. If the buyer has a relationship with you or with the product or has a better understanding, they're more likely to sell it better to their customers, right? They're more likely to talk about it when someone comes in the store and asks about what's new or what they're excited about, you know, so ultimately your sales are better when there's just a better connection with you know, whoever's physically in the store on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, absolutely. And they'll put, um, yeah, more precedence to your product and they'll give you better placement on the shelves. Um, I mean, especially for me, um, working grocery stores, you know how it is. Like there's huge long aisles and they're, you know, from floor nearly up to the ceiling. Right. And where you're placed definitely has an impact on how much product you sell. So... When you just you you mentioned making like a packaging change, was that a change that was something that you was like more dictated to you because of the stores and because of like which products were selling in which sizes, or was it just more of an aesthetic, you know, visual change to help 
sales or better demonstrate the the value proposition of the product and the different categories that it hits? Um, I'd say all of the above. And okay. <laughs> also, <laughs> um, also convenience for me, um, just because That's when true. I first started out, um, I mean, I'm sure there's other people listening that might be doing this still, but I was actually buying stock labels from like the Home Depot or online Avery labels. Oh, wow. You know, I'd run to FedEx, mm-hmm. print how many I needed, and I'd actually cut them. You know, I'd cut the cut out the front label, the back label, and then I'd stick them on. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was a lot of work. And it didn't look quite as professional as I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I definitely switched gears and started ordering labels, which was a big thing. Oh, it's yeah. a huge investment up front, and I was so scared to do it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, am I ready for this? Mm-hmm. Can I sustain this? Um, can I actually sell through, through all these labels? Mm. <laughs> um, it was pretty scary, but I'm really happy that I did it. It definitely kind of solidified the product and made it seem a lot more professional. And you're also your mini packs now, those are like printed on, yes. right? So- How is that, sourcing that? Um, that was a long process, um, <laughs> a very long process, a lot of back and forths. Um, we did probably at least four or five color grids because mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that they lined up with the other full size, uh, products like the colors lined up. Right. Um, and then it prints differently on different types of material. Mm. So yeah, there was a lot of back and forth, but I'm so happy I did those. Yeah. Uh, it, that's a big, a, like a huge tip when you're doing any kind of like labeling or packaging to get a printed sample because sometimes they will push back and say, oh, it's not, it's hard to get a printed sample sometimes or it's expensive or like they don't want to set up a whole run just to send right. you like a printed sample. But like you said, like with one of our, when we were doing our old simple collection packaging or soon to be old, um, you know, we had a sticker that went on the front of the box that was obviously printed on white sticker paper. And then we had a clear sticker that was going on the glass. And, you know, it was the same color code, right, printed on both. But when we got, you know, a couple of them back, they just printed on the clear material were way too light. Didn't, not only didn't look like the other color, but it was almost illegible, you know, too light to like really read it. So it's always important to get that and see, side by side, do these look like the same color because they're printed on different materials or they're different, you know, styles or whatever. So that's like, I think a really important tip. A hundred percent. Invest the extra X amount of dollars. <laughs> and then also with like finally buying labels. I mean, I used to do the same thing. Our boxes were just stock U-line boxes, like, and then the labels were wrapped around the corner and our travel candle labels were all printed, just Avery labels, and I would print them on my own printer, and they never lined up 100%. Like, they were never 100% (laughs) centered, which bothered me so much, but I had no choice but to, like, you know, I didn't know about any other options. And the first time I ordered labels, I think, yes, it's a big upfront cost, but ultimately, the more you order, right, the you're talking eventually about, like, pennies per sticker when you start to get up there in quantity. And looking back, if I had just been smart enough to save a little bit of money, I should have done that 
way before we probably did it, at least for like the travel candle labels on the top. But um, I have a great resource, like my favorite website for labels is shortrunlabels.com because they they work with like any size business. You just have to order like 100 minimum labels and that is per size. So like let's say you have five different SKUs, you could break up the printing as long as it's the same size label over 100 and they would still run it for you, which most places would not do. Yeah, that's awesome. But they're really nice. The guy there, his name is Blake and he's been printing our travel candle labels now for three years but um I love them the only thing they don't do is clear labels so but anything you want on you know paper stock I would check them out if you guys are looking for somewhere that you know you don't need to do a run of like a thousand like it's not as expensive as you think it is once you but sometimes you're just you're nervous to even go out there and get those quotes but I encourage people to do it because not only does it save you money but it ultimately really it saves you time right you don't have to then oh, wow, we ran out of this Avery box and Staples doesn't have it. And I have to wait to order it from Amazon yep. <laughs> and then I have to print them. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> when you go through the holiday season with that, it's not it's not it's fun, r- guys. <laughs> no, it's definitely rough. Yep. <laughs> so now you guys are doing more than peanuts. When did you start doing the almonds? I know the trail mix is even newer than that. But like how if you started in 2011, how long was it just peanuts? When did you start doing other nuts? Sure. So the following year, 2012, I released uh, the sixth flavor of the peanuts, which is the dark cocoa chili. Okay. And then the following year were the almonds. So there were a lot of people asking me, I'm sure you get all the time, do you have any new scents or right. what, what's coming out new? So it's kind of like, okay, well, I guess I'll put something together. <laughs> right. I guess I'll, I'll figure out a new flavor, but the almonds, yeah, those came out the following year. And then just this past November 2015 were the mixes. Are the customers the ones who are asking more for new flavors or is it really the buyers? They always want to know what's new. Um, A little bit of both, but I think mostly customers. Okay. Um, they're really intrigued for new flavors um, just because some of them are a little more unique. There's the Rose and Pink Peppercorn, which is this spring and summer exclusive online. So that was my way of having one in between the others. <laughs> um, but it's hard. It's a lot of skews. Um, both the peanuts and the almonds come in two sizes. Right. Um, and then the mixes are a whole other game because they're in containers. So yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> That is a lot. So total, what, that's like at least 30, 30 plus SKUs? Um, two sizes, six cents yeah. each, peanuts and almonds. Okay. and then Great. But then you add the mixes in. How many yeah. SKUs in the mixes? Uh, just one. Just the one size. No, but different mixes. Oh, yeah. There's three. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you forgot. There are three... Um, Three varieties of the mix. Okay. Yes. So 25, 26, maybe. I think 23. Okay. I can't do math. We have <laughs> established this fact. It's not good. My accountant hates me. Have you done, I feel like you've done collaborations with certain brands, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Um, the most recent was with my friends at the Damn Handsome Grooming Co., Jarrett and Bridget, and we did a craft beer nut mix, which is awesome. So, cool. it, 
Um, if you haven't heard of them, they um, basically repurpose hops and uh, spelt grains and make beer soap and oils and all the men's grooming products. So they obviously love beer and I make nuts. <laughs> so beer nuts. <laughs> That sounds like a good partnership. I actually have heard of them. They're going to be on the podcast either next week or the week after. So we'll have two Kalamazoo entrepreneurs back to back almost. In addition to selling um, direct to stores, which is your bread and butter, right? That makes up the majority of your revenue per year. Yeah. Okay. You've been, and I think the last time I saw you, you and I were talking a little bit about this, but you've been trying to focus more on like selling online, selling direct to your customers. How has that been going? How do you feel like, how do people find you? Or is it mostly like they've had, they've purchased your nuts, you know, in store somewhere and then they're coming in buying more online or they want to try different flavors or how has that process been, you know, trying to sell direct to consumer? So it's definitely been a struggle for me um, just because it's not, I guess, something that I'm that familiar with. Hmm. Um, the whole tech side and websites and driving traffic and all that sort of thing. So um, but it's, you know, it's 2016, most people shop online. Um, so that's something that I'm trying to focus on this coming year. Um, and really driving more traffic to the site, whether it's through Instagram, like social, mm-hmm. or maybe being on this podcast, someone might <laughs> come to the site. <laughs> um, but it's definitely been, it's hard. Um, yeah. but I would say that a lot of my customers are actually outside of Michigan, which mm-hmm. is awesome. How exactly they're finding me, I don't know, but it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's great to reach out. Uh, When I was first starting selling online, you know, every single order feels like a magical, like, how did you find me? This is so great. I just want, I just want to be your best friend and talk to you and find out. So sometimes I would just, you know, write them an email, like you get their email address when you have this, you know, the sale. So I would, you know, email them and just thank them personally. Obviously, I would write a little thank you note, but that doesn't help a lot for like two-way communication. So I would email them and thank them for their order. And I would just ask like, how did you find, uh, you know, how did you find the website? And, you know, how did you find out about us? And I feel like nine times out of 10, it was just Google. They were just searching for, it was so random. And we get Google traffic like a lot, um, which is why I tell people, even if you don't understand a lot about like the website stuff, set up your analytics, if only to just see the searches people are using that are causing them to land on your website. Um, Because it just really gives you some insight as to like what people are looking for, or what Google thinks, you know, your website is about and how people are kind of finding you. Nowadays, most of the search queues are simply curated, simply curated candles. People are like looking for the the website and they don't remember the URL. Um, but it, in, it used to just be soy candle gift or something like that, or, you know, gifts for mom. And then it would come to a blog page that would then, you know, land on our site or whatever. So it's always helpful to ask if it's not too overwhelming and you don't have that many orders, you can kind of find out because you never know. It could really just be Instagram people are seeing, you know, and then buying, buying it there. That has kind of a viral traffic that I think is harder to track um it's harder to find out that a sale came like directly from instagram because it could be indirectly directly like it could be someone saw it and then they bookmarked your site and then three weeks later you know whatever whatever so i think it's always good to just ask to try to find out because you know we want to know we want to know like how you guys are finding us and you know (laughs) buying our products etc 
so have you so you haven't expanded really outside of Michigan or what are the areas like if people want to find your nuts and they're not you know in the Midwest how far is your distribution like right now where can they get them you know obviously they can get them online but how far have you kind of stretched your own distribution locally sure. um well more recently I've been focusing on California oh. uh, I have some great um cool stores out there um the one that or the first one is Alfred Coffee mm-hmm. so they're based in LA um they're actually, I think, like one of the most Instagram coffee shops, which is really cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, Instagram coffee shops. I know. <laughs> so there, or I work with two of their locations. And then more recently, I guess as of last week, there's another coffee shop in San Francisco. It's called Artist Coffee that I'm working with. And I mean, most of the business is in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some random like shops in, in other states. So mm. I mean, you can go online on the stockist page and and see exactly where. But the ones that are kind of outside that are random, was that usually just like they found you and reached out if it's kind of like all over the place? Or did you seek them out specifically like they were a high volume store or something like that? So um, actually, the uh, with Alfred, I was at a um, a conference in Chicago over the summer hmm. and uh, it's uh, I was just attending, but the owner, Josh was there speaking. Hmm. And, uh, one of the other, one of the mentors is good friends with him. So she connected us and I said, I told him, I really think that my product needs to be in your coffee shop. He's like, all right, okay. Just like just my <laughs> email, like send it to me. I'm like, right. all right, I need to follow up with this. So sorry, I ended up sending samples and their team really loved it. And they brought it in, and there you go. <laughs> That's exciting. How long has it been in there now? I believe since September of last year. Wow. Yes. Are they reordering regu- pretty regularly? Actually, yeah. I'm sending out an order after we finish up here. <laughs> <laughs> I think that like when people start selling wholesale, it's easy to focus on like the big fish. Or, you know, you might have this like dream of this big store or something like that. But I try to tell people that like it's important to focus on the consistent fish. Yeah. <laughs> because consistency or like rather, you know, the frequency of reorders is what's going to keep your business afloat. And a store that's really in love with your product and ordering every three weeks, every two weeks, like if they're churning through it like that, you know their customers are going to be coming back for more, especially if you're in an industry like, you are, where technically my product would also fall in this category, but it's slightly more giftable. But essentially, it's a consumable product, right? Whether it's, you know, skincare or food or something that they're using up and then they would go back to that same store to buy it again, right? They liked it, they had it, they want to go back again and get it, you know, get it again. So when you have that, the reorders are the most important, making sure the store doesn't get bored, making sure nothing sits on the shelf too long, right? Um, in you know last week's episode the one that actually came out today that we were recording Megan Amon talks about like she always wants to make sure her stores are selling the inventory that they have right if it's not selling you don't want something to sit on the shelf because every time the buyer or the store owner looks over at it all they see is this has been here for four weeks this has been here for six weeks right and then that makes them just it just triggers something in their mind this isn't working I'm not going to, you know, even though we're down on one of these SKUs, three of them are not moving. I'm not going to reorder with this company. So you want to make sure that you've positioned your stores. And I think that your choices of like 
being selective with the stores that you reached out to, right? And making sure those stores are a great fit beforehand, just based on what you know about your product and what you know about your target customer, you're kind of gearing the stores up, you know, for the most success. Of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely agree with all everything that you had said. Um, I started out, like I said, working with smaller independent shops mm-hmm. and my goal had always been to work with Whole Foods. And that was always kind of at, you know, the end of the tunnel. But I decided to focus on the smaller shops and really build the base and then reach out. Um, mm. And then I I started working with them a little over a year ago. And that's obviously brought a lot more exposure and mm-hmm. um, in business. But I think it's definitely important starting out small and working your way up. Have you considered doing any of the like food-related trade shows, like the Fancy Food Show in New York or like the Natural no, there's like a natural foods trade show. I forget what it's called. It's like natural expo. West, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of doing that this year. Um, actually, the fancy food show in New York. But I mean, it's a huge commitment. Oh, for sure. You no, know, not only financially speaking, but well, that's probably the biggest one. But <laughs> but time as well and mm-hmm. making sure that you get everything out of it, you know? Right. Um, so it's definitely a a big leap of faith. I think I might end up doing it next year, Mm -hmm. but I think it could definitely help a lot. Yeah. Is it just once a year? Yeah. The fancy food show, they have the summer one, uh, typically in New York Mm -hmm. and then the winter one is in San Francisco. Oh, okay. I see. That makes sense. I have a couple of friends who are, uh, like have an ice cream company in New York. And so I know that they've done the one in New York, but I think they might've also done San Francisco as well. But you have to not only be ready to like make the expense, but then you have to be ready for two possible outcomes. One, if it goes well, Uh can you handle that level of increased production like that quickly? Which I think when a lot of times a trade show does go well, that part overwhelms people. Our first trade show, even though it was only with a sales rep, we weren't even, you know, doing it fully on our own. So a bit less of a financial commitment we weren't really prepared for the level of orders and it was still just me at the time to the point where we were back ordered on certain things for six weeks, you know, and you had orders just sitting there, you know, money you couldn't collect on. And then, you know, it was just a problem. Like I wasn't able to turn around the inventory fast enough. You have a, you run the risk of like buyers forgetting that they ordered something from you. Right. By the time you're ready to ship it, they're like, oh, we don't need this anymore. We don't want this anymore. You know, and technically they signed a contract. They're not allowed to do that. But most of the time you you just kind of let it go. But you have to be prepared for that increase in production. But then also, if God forbid it doesn't go very well or you get a lot of good feedback, but you don't necessarily get purchase orders, you have to be prepared financially to sustain the kind of hit that you just took for a few months until you like recover. You kind of have to be prepared for both outcomes and both of them unfortunately require a lot of cash. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Have you done work with like gift box companies? Yeah. Um, I started focusing on that quite a bit more, um, this past holiday season Mm -hmm. and reaching out to a lot of different ones that are not just in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm actually sending out one again, after we finish up here, (laughs) um, to a company in Maryland. And I think that's a great idea because it obviously will widen your customer base Mm -hmm. and, um, 
help introduce your product to a lot more customers, whereas you only need the sale from one person rather than, you know, 20, which is awesome. Right. I just find that whole industry so interesting because we it, it does feel like they're popping up like all over the place, these gift box companies. And there are, you know, I would say three to five very large ones and then like 30, you know, kind of small ones. Um, if you said that you've been reaching out more to them, but I'm I'm curious kind of how the arrangement has been. Is it more just a traditional wholesale arrangement? Because we've gotten a couple requests where people kind of assume that we're, that, you know, like maybe this isn't less for gift box companies and more for like subscription services, subscription box companies, you know, whether it's for like food or, you know, whatever, where they assume that we're going to give them the product for free as a like, because they're reaching so many people that would potentially order. Have you run into any of that or are you just kind of traditional wholesale arrangement? Well, actually when I first started out, I I did do that. The um it was kind of silly at the time because at the time <laughs> it, they wanted it for their December box. It was a subscription box company and I basically didn't sleep for like 2 months trying to fulfill this order. Oh wow. At that time, it was still relatively new. Uh, to the market, the subscription boxes. So I didn't know kind of what it entailed. And I ended up donating the product for free, right? Um, which was obviously a huge expense. I did see a lot of traffic that holiday season. But yeah, ever since then, I'm actually working on, on one right now for another company, but they're, they're actually paying me mm-hmm. a little above cost. Um, okay. So I'm making a little bit on it. But I think it's a great marketing tool, at least for me, for a food product because right. people want to taste it, right? Right. They want to see, do I like this product before really, I guess, investing in it. So right. it's been great for me, but I don't think I'll do any that are completely free. It's, I mean. <laughs> I think it depends on your product too, right? Like it just depends on, you have like, it depends on your costs, right? And I obviously don't know what your costs are for your little, like the little packs, but you have a size that lends itself very well to like that kind of thing where yes, it would be an expense, but maybe not like totally something that breaks the bank. Whereas like our smallest size, the travel candle is still a hefty sized item that still, you know, retails for over 10, you know, for $13 right. and you know, up to 13 to 15. So for somebody to ask for that for free is too much. We get them all, we get the requests all the time, either not just from subscription box companies, but a lot from like gift bags. Huh. For like events, whether it's a conference uh-huh. or like an award show, they just swag bags. Swag bags, right? Yes. Right. They just want <laughs> that's what it's called. <laughs> you know, they just want them for free. And depending on the opportunity, we did it one time. We did it for South by Southwest, and there was this really big bag. And I wish I had even known who else was going to be in this bag, or I probably would have put more effort into it because we just gave them the travel candles, nothing else. We didn't give the recipients like a discount code or put like an info card in there or anything and I was actually at the event and I got the bag and it was this huge bagu duffel bag stuffed full with it had to be over $500 worth of product it was heavy it was it's like really nice I mean I was like so impressed by the bag and it felt so silly being in there and not having like put a more of a promotional spin on the product to try to get people to then like come to the site. Instead, I just was like giving them this travel candle without any call to action or, or anything. So if you're going to give something away, 
some, some of the best items I saw in the bag were, you know, from some independent designers and, you know, there was a product in there, whether it was a smaller piece or something like that. But even if your piece didn't necessarily lend itself to being given away, essentially they gave away gift cards, like a $75 gift card or whatever. And the math on that is that not everybody who gets the bag is going to use that. Right. But the people who are, are most likely going to spend over that dollar amount right to use the card or whatever so it was just some lessons learned like if you ever are giving something away at least make sure people know what the product is and where they can buy it and it's not just like oh let me just throw it in here let me just give you exactly how I would pack it for a retail order you know try to go above and beyond if you're gonna do that and take that expense make the marketing opportunity you know work for you absolutely and make sure that it's the right fit as well you know the right event right clientele right person that's getting the product right. so I think that's important too that's also very true so looking forward to the future yes how do you see the whole thing kind of playing out how long do you you know do you want to stay self-distributed do you want to kind of go more you know into the whole foods of the world and dealing with more of that larger infrastructure or do you kind of like where you're heading and want to just continue to grow with the independence of the world? I mean, I've always focused and believed in organic growth Mm -hmm. and people growing with me and my business and, you know, telling their friends and so on and so forth, rather than just really bulldozing through and being like, Hey, (laughs) I'm here. I'm everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Not to mention the fact that I still make everything by hand and Mm -hmm. package it by hand. So it'd be a little more difficult, but I think, slow and steady growth is my approach to it. Um, like I, like I just said, I'm actually still doing everything on my own. I don't have any employees. Right. Um, so that might be something that I need (laughs) or would want to bring in interns, something of that sort. Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely. I'd like to grow absolutely outside of Michigan for sure. Do you think that you would like to do, do you think that that with the current, like, let's just say, status or like situation within the food industry or the industry of like you know smaller packaged snacks let's just say and you can even put the organic you know gluten-free all of those categories do you feel like it's possible to continue self-distributed or do you feel like you know do you feel like the distributor model is something that's more like antiquated and and falling out of fashion for lack of a better word you know kind of an older model and more companies are willing to or rather more brands and more stores are willing to work directly with these new companies because they want exciting new product they want you know trendy things or do you think that that is an industry much less likely to be disrupted the whole distributor industry I mean I feel like it's always going to be there regardless of the fact I do agree that there are a lot of smaller independent shops looking for that unique product that mm-hmm. you know, handcrafted small batch artisan type thing and they do want to go directly to the producer to order it but I mean if you want really accelerated growth I definitely say that a distributor is the way to go hmm. the benefits um, obviously they're in the stores every single week checking the shelves, making sure product is being reordered. Mm. Whereas for me, if I miss that opportunity, their shelves might be empty for a week or two and that's a missed opportunity for a sale. Right. So, you know, it's 
pros and cons, and they obviously take a cut, um, which is generally about 25%. Whoa, really? Yeah. So let's say, for example, if if I'm wholesaling for a dollar to the store, well, you're obviously going to keep that $1 to the store so they can mark it up. Mm -hmm. um, But I'll have to sell it to um, the distributor for 75 cents. So I'm basically losing 25 cents, but... Mm Um, but they actually will also come and pick up the product, whereas now I'm drop shipping. So it's kind of a give and take right, also right, right. shipping, but I'll pay more here. So, yeah. I mean, it's really about doing the math and if you can keep up with production, then mm-hmm. that's, you know? Yeah. I guess it's not as shocking of a number when you think of it kind of that way, because it is different than let's say like a sales rep model where they're doing all the sales, but not any of the action, you know, a distributor model is they're actually doing the distribution, right? You don't have to worry about fulfilling. You just have to fulfill to keep their warehouses full in whichever regions, you know, they're in not really order by order or store by store like you're doing, you know, now. Right. Whereas a traditional sales rep will take 15% just for the simple, you know, getting the sale and fostering that relationship and continuing that relationship. So it's interesting just to kind of hear the differences, you know, in those two industry lines. Um, I mean, it's different. It's basically like with the distributor, you're working with one person mm -hmm. and they're dropping off, obviously, to all the locations. They'll probably get you new stores just because they have, you know, relationships with a lot of other ones. So, you know, most likely they'll end up bringing you more business, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just different. I mean, maybe someday I will. I've thought about it. I've, some of them have reached out to me. I just mm-hmm. haven't pulled the trigger. <laughs> well, I think there's still a lot of room for you to grow without one, right? Whether it's just like in getting an intern or, in, you know, increasing production slightly or just starting to branch I think this branch outside of kind of like your local, you know, regional areas and just yeah. looking more towards other stores, like what are the bigger stores in in other other markets? And I think that your relationship with this coffee shop in California is a really good test case um, to, to that industry to set, kind of start to, you know, look at the other independent stores that are very popular in other like larger cities like you know what's the most instagrammed coffee shop in chicago what's the most you know like certain things like that just finding when i was first like starting in wholesale i didn't just look at stores that were like close to me but i looked for stores that were influential to other stores in their in their category so you know there's why does a small paper boutique you know in Arkansas have 20,000 Instagram followers, right? It's not just customers, they're local who are locally shopping there, but it's other people who like that kind of product and it's other stores in that similar category who are following them, who look to what they do, who look to what they buy, what are they carrying, what are they finding that's new? And so when you use that strategy to, you know, find a coffee shop that's a good partnership that you know people people like it and and not only do people go there and take pictures but that other coffee shops look to their aesthetic to what other things they're carrying to you know people like are looking at all of this stuff um it's a good way to help accelerate your own growth without always having to be the one that reaches out eventually you start seeing stores that come to you because they were on vacation in Chicago and they were in this coffee shop and they had these nuts and like they happened to be a buyer for a store in you know Seattle whatever it is right like yeah 
I can't tell you how many times we've had orders that have come from buyers on vacation. You're kidding. <laughs> no, they're, they saw it, you know, somewhere. And right now, like, I'm trying to get into um, this partnership with some, uh, like, an airport retailer. Okay. That originally they contacted us because they're doing a bid in the Grand Rapids airport. So specifically, like, they were looking for local companies, right? But then I reached back out and I said, yes, of course, we would love to do this in the Grand Rapids airport. But also, we think that our travel candles would be great for airports like everywhere, right? Like I wanted that bigger opportunity because I felt like, oh, my gosh, if we could get into, you know, 20 airports around the country or whatever, how many times people pick up this travel candle, even if they just see it and smell it and don't buy it. But you have nothing to do. You're on a layover. You're shopping. You're because you're bored, right? You're looking at magazines. Yeah. <laughs> you pick up this candle. You smell it. Oh my gosh, that smells amazing! And then you either buy it or you look at the website or you take a picture or whatever. Like I thought it was a. I think it's a great opportunity. So, it's always important to think outside the box and think about the chain reaction. Um, my favorite thing is to remember to like remind myself is that buyers are people too, right? Uh, a buyer, a buyer is not this like big, you know, scary thing. Like a buyer is just a person who is trying to do their job. And what is their job? Their job is to find product to put in their store. And you have a product that could go in their store. So, you know, not being so afraid to like approach them and just be like, hey, I think you might like, the-. you know what I mean? It's not as like big and scary as, as you think it might be. I completely agree. That's how I was first starting out. I was so timid and nervous and I didn't think anyone would want my product and I was just so <laughs> shy. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're completely right. It's just another person, you know, and they're looking for new products. They're looking right. for unique things to stock for their customers. So, you know, just do it. Reach right. out. And when they do, and because that's their job, when they are on vacation, when they are out with friends, they notice things that other people don't notice. They notice that packaging that they've never seen before and so they go and look to see what it is because that's their job hey guys it's sarah again i'm so sorry about the abrupt exit to the end of this podcast i really do apologize it got cut off for some strange reason i really don't know why and i hope it never happens again but you didn't really miss much just me finishing my thought there and then thanking Bissera for coming on the show Bissera, I did want to give you guys all a discount code for Lush Nuts, and the discount code is PODCAST15, and it will get you 15% off any purchase at Lush Nuts. Um, the website and the podcast code is in the description below. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it, and I hope to see you next time. Bye. Bye.